Hello, this is Dara Whelan and I'm the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator. As part of our commemoration coverage, we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that's looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 objects. It's based on the book A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects by well-known historian John Gibney, who is the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor of Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. And he's also written the biography of Sean Hewson for the acclaimed 16 Live series. John, you're very welcome to the show. Morning, Dara. And this is our final podcast, the 10th and the 10th parter. Uh, on today's podcast, we're going to be discussing a 1916 memorial card that was bought in Moore Street in 1917. Yeah, um, because one of the... Uh one of the things that's often mentioned by people attempting to sound clever about the Easter Rising is the irony of uh, its apparent unpopul- unpopularity on the streets once the Rising was over. Now, it was unpopular. Um, and a lot of people made made that made their hostility to the Rising very vocally clear. Now, you could also argue that there was probably more latent simply for the Rising than necessarily met, met the eye. And think about it. I mean, Dublin was on a military occupation. You know, you know, the supporters of the Rising were going to keep their head down in the aftermath. The whole thing is that, however, is that that changed. I mean, the hostility of 1916 had become outright support for an independence movement by 1918. And the story of the Rising is as much a story of how support for the Rising was grew and was established after the fact. And this little memorial card points towards a hint of it. It's a, um, it's a card for the Irish National Aid and Volunteer Dependence Fund, which was an organisation founded out of... Uh, out of a number of organisations established in the aftermath of the Rising to deal with prisoners' welfare. Uh, one of its, its, its uh, secretary was apparently uh, a young and energetic man called Michael Collins. So this is one of the organisations through which Collins began to rise up through the ranks of the Republican movement after his own release from prison. And it details, um, well, the 16 executed leaders of the Rising, the 60 or so um, members of the volunteers in the Fianna Air and Citizen Army killed in the Rising. And interestingly, it also... Um, it also request prayers for the repose of the soul of Francis Sheehy Skeffington mm. as well. And it was bought in number six in number seventeen Moore Street. Now we already mentioned uh, number sixteen Moore Street a few weeks back, you know, which was owned by a poulterer, Patrick Plunkett. Um and that was the building in which the, the decision to surrender seems to have been made. Next door, however, was a chemist called Lord J. Gore, who interested well it's not that interesting. He had to live somewhere. He lived in Clontarf, you know. And it was bought this particular one, uh, it's a card that's held in Kilmainham Jail Museum and it was bought in seventeen Moore Street on the nineteenth of March 1917. Now, you can imagine how this was bought. We've all, I mean, if you're of a certain age, you might remember, you know, certain newspapers being sold in pubs on Saturday night. Uh, we've all wandered around the streets and we've come across people hustling for whatever charity, Amnesty International or, you know, Oxfam or whatever charity is necessarily they're plugging for, you know. Um, and people selling, people selling cards and raffle tickets. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a long established and honourable tradition. This is the same. A card like this, it's not, it's not just, it's about raising a couple of quid, yeah, but it's also, it also, whether by accident or design, fosters publicity. Reminds people of those men who died and who were imprisoned for Ireland, um, and in that sense, it's a part of the uh, it's a part of the manner in which you know the political defeat or the, the military defeat of the rising was transformed into the political victory of Sinn Fein, and um, I suppose there's no coincidence that you know the the, the first set of names on the card or those executed, and one of the great things that set up the rising is that everyone hated it, but then he had executions, and then everyone realised that well, the Republicans are right all along. It's a bit more complex than that. But that's a big part of what I, of why the attitude changed. Um, the Irish National Aid and Volunteers Dependence Fund had been established as early as August 1916. But even as early as that, the British authorities were realising that you know attitudes towards the rising were changing. They were becoming a bit more sympathetic. It's fair to say that the the 
a lot of people were kind of were acutely aware that something had happened in Dublin and that those executions would be a part of it. Like say Thomas Kettle, who's never held up as a Republican, you know, and I suppose rightly so. But uh, one of Kettle's famous lines is, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that uh, those men in Dublin will go down as heroes and martyrs. And if anyone remembers me at all, they'll remember me as a bloody British officer. You know, even someone like that could realise that, that, that something had happened in Dublin. That was of, that was of significance. Now, what, what, way the, what way the cards might fall was another story. But there was a recognition that something serious had happened. Um, and something significant. And the manner in which the public mood changed afterwards. See, it wasn't just... The, it, the British... I mean, British heavy-handedness had a huge role to play in this. And it wasn't just the executions. Mass interments. Three and a half thousand people were locked up after the rising. Half them were released within two weeks. Um, the entire country was placed under martial law for a rebellion that effectively only happened in Dublin. The threat of conscription? That came later. Well, that, that's part of the story that came later. But Tom, just the immediate aftermath of the rising, just for a moment, okay, um, there were two things that generated sympathy. One was British heavy-handedness and the way in which that was being condemned. Give you an example. The town of Roscommon. Okay, the only thing that happened in Easter week in Roscommon was that in the town of Roscommon was that someone flew a tricolour flag. The town was sealed off after the rise and systematically searched by the British Army and a number of prisoners were taken away. Now, that kind of heavy handedness wasn't just applied to Dublin, it was applied across the country. And you can't underestimate the extent to which the British alienated Irish public opinion by doing this type of thing. I mean, if you weren't a Republican, why were you being treated as one? If you'd remained loyal, why are you being treated as a traitor? And if you were a home ruler, you might start thinking that all of a sudden this Sinn Féin rebellion was giving the British the perfect excuse not to grant you the home rule you demanded during the war. We sometimes hear the refrain that, well, home rule would have led to independence. It wouldn't. We sometimes hear that home rule was on the statute book. So what? It was never implemented. And the fear was after 1916 was that, well, it might not be implemented. Well, who was it that said the biggest mistake made by the British was that... Um by allowing um, the Ulster Volunteers to form and have guns, that that basically set in train the motion of whatever's on the statute books, we're not going to put up with it. So oh, therefore, yeah. the rule of law was was gone out the window. Yeah, and funnily, one you know, there was a great deal of hostility amongst the British Armed Forces towards the UVF, and the British the British military privately felt that you know the the authorities in Ireland had let a genie have a bottle by creating the UVF that it should have been stamped out at the start. That the UVF said that Owen McNeil wasn't the only one to think that the North had begun. You know, a lot of British, senior British people did. Obviously, they wouldn't say so publicly and couldn't say so publicly, but there was an awareness that, you know, there was a chain of events and they were stuck with the consequences. Now, British heavy handedness was one thing. It's, I'd argue there were, made, there were really three things that caused people's attitudes to change. British heavy handedness was one. Reevaluating the motives of the rebels themselves, you know. Um, reading their writings, their letters to their families, this kind of stuff, you know, realising that they were men of integrity and so forth, you know. Um, that's another part of it. The second thing, or the third thing I'd say, though, is that, um, and is that basically support for home rule began to fracture and become dissipated after the rising because the whole point of home rule, I suppose, was, well, it kind of depended upon the British conceding it. What if they didn't do that? Why, why, and it's the other thing, why didn't the British at the time come out and say, listen guys, what went on, rebellion, terrible, you know, absolutely horrific, but don't worry, home rule is still going to happen. When this war ends, home rule is going to happen. Why, why didn't they announce, you know, from a PR perspective? Well, they did. They just couldn't get consensus on it. Like, uh, home rule was officially on ice till the war was over, but within months of the rising, they'd established a thing called the Irish Convention, which met in Trinity College, which was uh, intended to get some kind of agreement to allow for speedily passing the home rule bill. Because they recognised full well, if you got home rule off the statute book and into 
into, you know, what's now the Bank of Ireland, got it in practice, then you'd head off the Republican threat at the past, potentially. They couldn't get agreement. Also, unionists boycotted it. And also, unionists were basically, um, were, the, were, the, were the crooks of the matter. You know, all they had to do was basically sit in their hands, refuse to engage. And you could say that established a long tradition of, you know, unionist attitudes towards the rest of uh, the rest of Ireland. Um, and that ultimately they would they would get what was promised to them before the war, some kind of partition. So the Irish Convention failed. And in doing so, you could say that, well, surely Home Rule had actually, whatever but being on the statute book, it had failed before the war. So if your political cause was, if that had fallen by the wayside, might you look for an alternative? I mean, Sinn Féin was kind of, Sinn Féin were, was getting support in 1917. And we can gauge that from by-elections, you know. They won a couple in a row. Now, in early 1918, Home Rulers won three in a row, which suggests that perhaps the pendulum was swinging back to the cause of Home Rule. Now, you mentioned conscription a moment ago, and the British threat to impose conscription in 1918. Throughout the, the, throughout, from the outset of the war, to use the parlance of our times, Home Rulers had said that while they would support the war to some degree and support the war effort, conscription, or the imposition of conscription, was a red line issue. Now, all of a sudden, here's a movement that places faith in the British and their stated policy that had been articulated for years was being completely disregarded by the British. Why wouldn't you go for an alternative? And don't forget, the war was unpopular. Like, John Redmond was coming out with some incredible stuff about, you know, Irishmen dying with a smile on their lips in the Western Front because he knew they were dying for Ireland. Patrick Pierce wasn't the only one to say that. That's kind of hollow in against the context of Irishmen being killed and maimed during the war. It may well have been the case that, you know... Irish national opinion would might well have been in the market for a change of political leadership after, in during the First World War. What happens is the East Horizon provided it, and cards like this fostered those kind of sentiments. Now, one thing I like about this card is that it does kind of have a little. Uh, the guy who bought it, Michael Keating, was um, a chem an assistant in Gore's chemist, and he bought the card. Now, in fairness, um, in talking about you know cards like this had been been indicative of sympathy being generated. Him buying that card, well, whoever sold him was preaching to the converted because he was in the Irish Volunteers himself. And in the copy in Kilmainham Jail, he wrote in a little uh, story on the back of the card about uh, something that happened after the Rising, which is that the Tuesday after the Rising, he turned up for work and the premises were raided and he was due to be arrested. And uh, luckily for Kavanagh, the uh, the soldier who would come looking for him was a guy called Con Sullivan of the Royal Irish Rifles, who turned out to be his first cousin and who let him off the hook, which I suppose is a little reminder that, you know, uh, when we're looking at this period, well, it's tempting to go for black and white. There's a, there's a lot of grey areas in Irish history, a lot more than 50. Absolutely. John, thanks a million for that. Uh, and that's it from our 10-part podcast on the history of the Easter Rising and 10 Objects. I hope you enjoyed the series. Don't forget you can read, watch, and listen to more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916. John Gibney's A History of the Easter Rising and 50 Objects, which this podcast series was based, is published by Mercier Press and is in all good bookshops. John, it's worth well worth a read. My many thanks to you for joining us on the podcast and maybe see you the next one for the, the War of Independence, Civil War, and all the rest of it.